The written word is a hell of an invention. So, you may be wondering why it's so low down on our list. Well, I've split up language and the alphabet into two separate categories, and today we're focusing on the alphabet. The use of the alphabet has given us literacy, which has resulted in untold wealth and benefits. If numbers are the guide to the physical world and how one describes it, then letters are the best way to describe the social one. The written language was not one of those inventions everybody saw and thought, this is the greatest invention ever. It took millennia from the dawn of symbolic cave art to the earliest notations to the first systematic and codified alphabets. So what is an alphabet? It is not a synonym for a written language. The alphabet is what makes our language like it is, different to Chinese characters or hieroglyphs. It is the use of symbols called letters used to represent particular syllables. You can then put these together and these sounds will make up a word. The most used alphabet in the world is the Latin alphabet, which has been adopted and modified by many, but it is not the only alphabet. Alphabets do not even need to be composed of linear writing. Braille is as much of an alphabetic language as any. The implications of an alphabetic language have been profound. Some say that the alphabetic language was a necessity for the growth of democracy, as it enabled the world to become literate. Other claim the alphabet enabled a more analytical way of thinking, compared to the Chinese language, which some say promoted grander theories simply by the way it was composed. Letter-by-letter -letter thinking promoted reductionist thinking and smaller links between ideas, or so the theory goes. Not that I'd be too deterministic regarding how the written language impacted a society, though I think a link between an alphabet and democracy and general literacy is more plausible. Despite the obvious benefits of a written language, it was not always popular. Plato said writing was an inhuman and means of destroying memory. But in more modern times, the study of logic and language and the alphabet has been reappraised by more current philosophers. Ludwig Wittgenstein was one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century if not the greatest, and he theorised a lot about language. Wittgenstein said in Tractus Logico Philosophicus that, quote, man possesses the capacity of constructing languages in which every sense can be expressed, without having an idea how and what each word means, just as one speaks without knowing how the single sounds are produced. Colloquial language is a part of the human organism and is not less complicated than it. Quotes. He went on further to investigate letters. He said hieroglyphic writing, which pictures the facts, is what it describes. From this origin came the modern alphabet, which managed to keep the essence of representation, even when it lost the descriptive symbols. The sound is represented by the letter. Hieroglyphs are a lot different to the modern alphabet. The alphabet brought a capacity for a far broader range of expressions than hieroglyphs. However, just because the alphabet is an incredible invention doesn't mean most writing isn't good. The alphabet is surely capable of everything from describing the most incredible things possible, from science to love, to the most mundane. 
Yet, this is what makes the alphabet so great. It's only a tool from human ingenuity. From Shakespeare to crazy people of Facebook, the alphabet ranges from the very best of humanity to the worst. The story of inventions is the story of tools. The alphabet is the most flexible tool humans have ever invented. But we need to remember there are many different alphabets. The Latin script in its English form more accurately represents English than Chinese characters represent Mandarin. Yet, this doesn't really matter for literacy overall. While the Finnish script, for example, is highly efficient phonetically wise, the lack of efficiency in the Chinese script, which the Japanese also use, doesn't mean there's any difference in learning ability. Both Japan and Finland have astoundingly high literacy rates. All alphabets result in the same innate ability to record. The alphabet and writing have some of the widest ranges consequences of any invention. All knowledge is formed and codified in writing. Society builds on institutional memory. Writing helps us remember. Political leaders have used the written word for millennia, and it's no coincidence the earliest civilizations that we know were also the civilizations that could write. When do we start our episode? What is an alphabet? Is rock art a form of communication? You could argue it's a very early form. The earliest form, from what I've read, would mean the alphabet started around 40,000 years ago. But this would have simply been tallies, proto-writing if you will, notches on bones to record the moon phases as an early calendar, a form of recording using the tally. Yet, this is hardly a detailed alphabet. So the earliest system of any form of writing we know is tallies. This is any type of notches or way to keep track of events. Tallies could be taken to track the days or lunar notions to create calendars or to remind somebody to do something. The Chancellor of the Exchequer used tally sticks to record receipts from 1100 to 1834, while clay tokens with various indentations have been recorded around the Levant and Mesopotamia, but nobody knows what they were for, yet accountancy is a good guess. Over time, these tokens increased in complexity, and it may have meant that the number of things you could do with them also increased. With a stenciled hand and red dots drawn onto a boulder 20,000 years old count, is that writing? There is an increase in the number of paintings and drawings being found which might tell us whether this is writing. If it's the use of images to represent thoughts, does that make it writing? Perhaps certain Ice Age humans had a complete alphabet that's now lost to history, as we're only picking up certain things. I mean, we cannot even be sure these humans could talk, though most scientists believe they could. The modern-day alphabet and written word emerged as a direct consequence of the expanding economy in Sumer in modern-day southern Iraq. The complexity of trade and state administration meant that being able to record things from memory was getting ever harder. A permanent record was needed. You can imagine how this worked. Nobody at the time thought they were doing anything special. One day, somebody decided to put a marker on a tablet to indicate something he or she might forget. This expands and expands into a more complex system of recording transactions. It may take many generations. 
Administrators over time realise this is the most efficient system for recording the truth of what is going on, and keep adding little bits and little bits to keep records up to date. Eventually it becomes necessary to be taught how to use this system. This might have taken decades, and nobody realised they were inventing an alphabet or the written word. It was just a useful tool. This probably happened at Uruk in Sumer, but we don't really know. This then led to the radical Rebus principle. Rebus is a technique that uses pictures and symbols to suggest the sound of words. For example, a picture of a bee and a representational image of N would result in the word bean. The most famous example of this was the Narmer palette. The Narmer palette dates from 3100 BC and was ceremonial in nature. It looked like a small shield and has what looks like a drawing on it. It was not intended to send significant meaning, but begins to show the abstractions that the alphabet would become if you start to see words. This hardly seems like writing or even proto-writing. But considered today, we are closer to the time of Alexander the Great than the making of a Narmer palette. Writing took a long time from representational images and the slow integration of abstraction to get proto-sentences. Through the mix of other hieroglyphs, writing took a long time from representational images and the slow integration of abstraction to get to proto-sentences through the mix of other hieroglyphs. This Rebus principle that a pictographic symbol could be used for its phonetic value was a revelation and not something universally adopted or discovered by other early writing systems. Once general writing was invented, it spread throughout the world, either diffusing through introduction from other cultures or evolving in similar ways. Egypt in 3100 BC, Indus Valley 2500 BC, Crete 1900 BC, China 1200 BC, and Central America 600 BC. It's of course most likely that the idea of writing spread rather than particular symbols, but we don't really know much more than that, as there's no empirical evidence as to how or why writing spread we either have diffusion or evolution. Depending on your view of human creativity, you can either believe it all came from this one spot, or all these cultures developed it independently. It's probably a little bit of both. Perhaps the most important early written text in Egyptian times is the Rosetta Stone. If you go to the British Museum, it's one of the principal highlights of perhaps the second most famous museum in the world after the Louvre though it's very disappointing to go and see. The Rosetta Stone was discovered in July 1799, in an old war in the village of Rosetta. The French military and scientific attaché, who instantly understood the potential of this script, sent copies of the Rosetta Stone to scholars across Europe, as at the time there was no understanding of hieroglyphs. On the Rosetta Stone were three scripts. Greek Egyptian hieroglyphs and a cursive form of Egyptian called Demotic. The first task was to translate Greek, and the script was a decree passed by a general council of priests. It was written in Greek because the rulers of Egypt were Macedonian Greeks, descended from Alexander the Great. The scholar then moved to the Demotic script. 
They knew the three scripts were identical in meaning, if not an exact translation, because the Greek portion told them it was a literal translation. They managed to identify the name Ptolemy in the Demotic script. However, not all of this Demotic script was alphabetical in nature. The man who deciphered it was Thomas Young. He worked out that the Demotic script was a mixture of alphabetic signs and hieroglyphic symbols. Young worked out that the name Ptolemy was a foreign name and thus not native to Egypt, so his name would be spelt phonetically, and he would be able to match up the sounds, P, T and M, to the various hieroglyphs. Many matched up perfectly. But there was still an issue. Simply being able to match various words wasn't the code breaker. Jean-Francois Champilleran was the one who cracked the code. After a copy of a bilingual obelisk was sent to him, at the base was a Greek inscription and the column had an inscription in Egyptian. There was an almost match on the obelisk to the Rosetta Stone on one line, except for an additional few symbols. He guessed it was most likely a royal title. After deciphering this and guessing the sounds of hieroglyphs and working out that some were homophones, he was able to identify lots of others' rulers' names from the inscriptions and guess the name Ramesses. What confused everybody was the hieroglyph for a mixture of symbols and phonetic signs. Some pictures of birds are not actually meaning birds. A hand, for example, is the T sound. Once the painstaking process had all been worked out, it meant that 5,000 years of civilization could not be read. It's hard to imagine now, perhaps, that ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, was one of the great fertile areas with one scholar saying the closest comparison would be to the Garden of Eden. Agriculture prospered along with cities and states and empires. The first clay tablet was found in 3300 BC, but by 2500 BC the tablets were in abstract cuneiform signs which developed into the script of the Babylonian and Assyrian empires, and eventually into the Persian Empire under Darius, where a new cuneiform script was invented. Cuneiform was a writing system for nearly 3,000 years, and it allowed for the first writing system in history. Hammurabi and the Gedea of Lagash will be known for the rest of recorded history, entirely due to writing. Cuneiform was almost lost to humanity and disappeared from collective knowledge from the birth of Jesus to around 1718 when a Spanish ambassador of Persia, Garcia Silva Figuero, identified ruins at the ancient site, Persopolis, where a mystery inscription was found. Not Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek or Arabic, there was no real idea of what it was. When the cuneiform was first published in 1657, it didn't arouse much interest. It took until the 1770s for the process to start, with Karsten Nibir, the first to notice many of the inscriptions were duplicated, meaning he could check them against each other. He found that the writing was left to right, and isolated the simplest signs. By 1800, decipherment proper started with German George Grotefend. He looked for a royal inscription like King or Son of X. Grotefend found a highlighted name which he reasoned was Darius and another which could be Xerxes, his son. 
After translating these from the nearest language, which he thought to be Zoroastrian, he came up with an alphabet based from that. Most of this was wrong, but it was a good start to deciphering the language. In the end, there was a Rosetta Stone or cuneiform. Found cut into the cliffs of western Iran, near modern-day Bististan, with Old Persian, Elamite and Babylonian. What was found was that cuneiform was an intensely complicated script. Firstly, we're talking about a script that spans 3,000 years. If you listen to English 1,000 years ago, it sounds like German or Norse, and basically a different language. Even Shakespeare is difficult, and that's only 400 years old. During its first three millennia of working use, there were 15 languages using the cuneiform script. One of the more lasting and interesting things about the Sumerian system, and life that still lives with us, is the sexagesimal system. That is the use of 12 as a base. The Sumerians used multiples of 12 for everything. That's why we have 60 minutes in an hour and 300 degrees in a circle. Despite the limitations of the cuneiform script, which is still a proto-writing style, it holds some of the earliest literature we know, such as the law code of Hammurabi, King of Babylon and the Epic of Gilgamesh. But I think it's interesting to compare the two. Egyptian and cuneiform. Cuneiform took centuries to develop. Egyptians suddenly appeared in around 3100 BC, just about the same time as the old dynasties did. In the period before, there have been archaeological finds of pottery and other worked items with symbols of pictogram of pre-dynasty Egypt, but I don't think these can be counted as writing per se. The idea of writing could well have been diffused from Mesopotamia, which was ahead by 200 years in this respect, but it may be an independent development. There may have been some things that were diffused, certain ideas, while others developed independently. From this came Demotic, which by the time of Greek domination was standard in Egypt. Its name comes from Demoticus, meaning in common use. Hieroglyphs were written from right to left and left to right, with the indicator being which way the symbols were facing the way the script should be read, though right to left reading was most common. How many people could write in Egypt? In the Old Kingdom, the population was around 1 million, and increasing to around 4.5 in the Greco-Roman period, and it has been estimated that around 1% were literate during this time. So from two of the great earliest languages to the first language of note in Europe, when archaeologist Arthur Evans discovered what he thought to be the palace of King Minos with the infamous labyrinth, what he actually found was a huge load of clay tablets written in Greek that had no resemblance to Egyptian hieroglyphs, cuneiform or the later Greek, he therefore had to coin a term for it. Having read Karl Hock's Dad Minosh Krita in 1825, he chose Minoan, which had been previously used to describe ancient Crete. He then needed a name for the new script he had just found, and he chose the unsexiest name of all time, Linear Script of Class B. Let's never let Arthur Evans name anything ever again. I do wonder if the Minoan language had a better name for its script, it might be better known. But Arthur Evans never even managed to decipher it, even after 40 years. It was Michael Ventris in 1952 who got that honour. A millennium and a half after Sumerian and Egyptian scripts, 
but pre-classical Greek by 500 years, Linear B is the first European script we can understand. Linear A, which came before B, has some similarities, but it still hasn't been deciphered much. Linear B was partly decrypted by Arthur Evans by looking at a Cypriot script he had also been deciphering. But Evans, despite finding coincidences with classical Greek, believed it couldn't possibly be Greek. Michael Ventris believed the same, but after a suggestion from an American classic scholar, Alice Kober, who said there were some similarities with Greek and Latin in its syntax, she recommended Ventris investigate this further. Ventris had been a schoolboy when he first became interested in Linear B, an 85-year-old Evans in 1936, and showed him and some of the other boys Linear B tablets. Sixteen years later, Ventris, when he found out it had still not been deciphered, made it his task to do so. By making a table of the frequency of certain signs and regularity to which they occurred, and by thinking that Cretan place names would be common, he noted certain patterns, which only occurred in tablets found on the main Cretan island, not on mainland Greece. By deciphering names step by step, he was able to work out certain place names and work out what each letter meant. It slowly began to look similar to early forms of Greek. With the help of a Greek specialist, he finally worked out that the Minoans and the Mycenaeans of mainland Greece were related centuries before Homer wrote. There was no literary value in working out Linear B, other than having worked it out. Nothing new about early Greek or Minoan civilization was on these tablets, but it was still a major step in our understanding of languages. Even today, we don't know much as we could about early languages. Apart from the fact that there could be up to 2 million cuneiform scripts, only 100,000 have been read or published. There are tens of thousands of unread scripts in the British Museum, and more all over the world. Furthermore, there are many undecided scripts out there, Linear A, Etruscan, Zabotec, Proto-Alamite, to name just a few. A few have been partially known, but for some like Indus, we don't even know what script it was written in. One of the more interesting cases of proto-writing calls from Easter Island called Rongo Rongo, a language made of a type of glyphs, but it's such a mystery nobody knows if it's even writing or whether it was an isolated language or came from Peru or possibly China. This would tell us whether it's indeed possible for civilizations to create their own language in isolate. It's most likely Rongo Rongo is a form of proto-writing with phonetic and logographic elements. But whatever it is, it's still broadly considered proto-writing. So if all of this is forms of proto-writing, where did the modern alphabet come from? Was it influenced by any of these scripts we've discussed? Well, nobody quite knows. The written word clearly got to Greece, but it's not clear if it was influenced by Mesopotamia, Egypt or Crete. Nobody knows if there was a single inventor or a gradual process. Of course, it's most likely a gradual development over time, as commerce interfaced with people, and there needed to be more complex things written down and recorded than before. There were likely great scholars and artists and authority figures who used the language and developed it and pushed it further. Deep conceptual shifts in humanity can take a long time. I wouldn't expect the alphabet to be any different. The earliest alphabet comes from Egypt, 
with a sphinx in the British Museum from around 1500 BC, with a strange inscription that reads, Beloved of Hatha, Mistress of Turquoise. The archaeologists, Sir Flinders Perry, who discovered it, guessed it was an alphabetical script, because there was only 30 different symbols used. Later Egyptologists studied it and thought it was similar to certain Egyptian hieroglyphs. If you believe the story of Moses writing down the Ten Commandments, then it's most likely he used this script. With Egyptians, beginning with the alphabet, how did it get to the West and take its modern form? For this, the alphabet most likely went to the Canaanites in modern-day Israel and Palestine, where their language started to evolve. The Canaanites lived at the crossroads of Egypt, the Hittites, the Babylonian and Cretan empires, and didn't have their own script. This meant they needed one that was easy to make, quick to write and precise in meaning. A simple adoption and copying from other cultures, but primarily Egyptian, would do the job nicely. The Canaanite alphabet of the 2nd millennium BC then diffused towards the Phoenicians. It's strongly believed this to be the root from around 1000 BC, but it isn't a clear line. This is because where it went, Phoenicia, has to be one of the most important, least known about of the great civilizations. Most agree it was a Semitic-speaking community in modern-day Lebanon, similar to ancient Greece in the setup of city-states. The Phoenicians were known for their trading, with trading routes set up all the way across the Mediterranean, especially on the African side. From the oldest known Phoenician script in the 11th BC, there were a lot of similar scripts over the next millennia. No surprise, as the Phoenicians were the greatest seafarers of the age who travelled and explored the Med Atlantic and may have circumnavigated Africa more than 2,000 years before the Portuguese. We don't know much about the Phoenicians as they left few records, but their alphabet of 22 letters went everywhere, and the names of the letters are the same as the Hebrew letters of today. When a Greek historian called the alphabet Phonikaiogrammata and said it was brought to Greece by the legendary Cadmos, we might as well believe him, because we don't have much more information. The transmission of the alphabet between Phoenicia and Greece probably wasn't easy. The Greeks would have thought the Phoenicians were barbarizing their own language as they taught them their script and their pronunciations were all wrong. There isn't a lot similar with our alphabet and the Greek one. Early Phoenician looks nothing like ours, early Greek looks something like it, but classical Greek begins to start looking somewhat similar. The names for letters for the Phoenician alphabet is similar to Greek, and this is where we get the first sense of how similar and how different these languages are to the modern day. I'll go through each alphabet in turn. First will be the Phoenician, and the second will be the Greek letter. Aleph and Alpha, Beth and Beta, Gemel and Gamma, Daleth and Delta, He and Ypsilon, War and Dagama, Zain and Zeta, Heth and Eta, Teth and Theta, Yod Iota, Kaf and Kappa, Lamed Lambda, Men Mu, Nun Nu, Thamet Zi, Iron Omicron, P Pi, Sardis Sun, Kof Copper, Res Rho, Sin Sigma, Tor Tau. While the Greeks also came up with three new letters, Ypsilon, Xi, and Omega. There are difficulties in assigning an exact date to the invention of the Greek alphabet. The earliest known Greek alphabetical inscriptions comes from 730 BC. Yet there are no business documents or anything useful you might find from written languages, 
leading some to speculate if it was written purely to record Homer. Before the deciphering of Linear B, it was assumed that Greeks were illiterate, while since the deciphering, the period of Homeric Greece and the rise of classical Greece has been called a Dark Age, which is still the prevailing view, but some do argue it wasn't anywhere near a Dark Age. Writing in Greece, using the alphabetic principles spread from Greece to Europe and to the East in the form originally of Aramaic to modern India, colonialism resulted in the alphabet being adopted all across the world, except for the Chinese and Japanese. The Greek alphabet was a remarkable thing. In context of its emergence, it was also unique. It was free from any other contact from literary societies. Political and social autonomy meant Greece had its own identity. There was a maintaining of this identity orally until the alphabet. The invention of the alphabet was made by speakers of the language. The alphabet was controlled by Greek speakers. No other oral to literate society has all of these five requirements. The Greek language, unlike that of the Sumerian and Babylonian scripts, was a complete alphabet, capable of detailing complete stories, unlike that of the Gilgamesh story, which was a precise script with little decoration, as it was meant to be read aloud and embellished and extended during readings. The rise of the Greek alphabet we know now wasn't the only alphabet certainly in Greece. This is the most well known, as one variation called the Euodian alphabet, which was taken to Italy in around 750 BC. The Greek alphabet we think of as the classical Greek one, called the Ionian alphabet, was only compulsory in Athens in 403 BC. From the Latin alphabet, modified out of the Greek language, we get English. For a long time, it was hardly the English we think of today. But today, modern English is the most used language in the world. If you know anything about English history, it's a story for the first few thousand years of complete irrelevance. Isolated on the edge of the poorest part of the Eurasian continent, Western Europe, where civilization was slow to develop. The oldest indigenous writing in England were runes near today's Norwich. Scholars believe it was written by somebody Scandinavian in origin. The runes were based on an ancient Germanic alphabet that was originally Roman and used by Scandinavians and Anglo-Saxons. There were 24 letters to represent 40 sounds, and it's here where we first see Old English, as it is now known, develop. Yet the spread of the Latin script has obfuscated that of other European scripts we just mentioned. Found to have existed from the 2nd century AD in Northern Europe, runes have been found to record the tongues of the Goths, Danes, Swedes, Norwegians, English, Frisians, Franks, and various tribes of Germania. Which sounds like I've just taken all my information from Age of Empires, but I can assure you I haven't. These Northern Europeans were not as illiterate as some believed the pre-Christian peoples to be. There was a range of runic scripts during this time, due to the wide-ranging nature of the language. The total number of runic scripts is estimated at 5,000, most of which are Nordic and in particular Swedish. Runes are a particular mystery with no real idea of where they were invented. Earliest rune inscriptions were located in Eastern Europe, perhaps by the Goths or on the Danube. Other hypotheses include runes coming from Jutland in Denmark or coming from Northern Italy. Most, however, do conclude that it was based upon the Latin script in a major way. The runic alphabet has 24 letters, 
with some of them matching up with the Latin alphabet and other adaptions of the Roman scripts. The sounds of the Germanic language are not too similar to that of Latin, so there is an obvious reason why the alphabets were different. Despite runes able to be read, the meaning is often cryptic due to the lack of knowledge about early Germanic languages. The first Latin texts in English were from 675 to 975 AD in the various dialects of Old English at the time, West Saxon, Kentish, Mercian, Northumbrian. Modern English is mostly a Mercian and Northumbrian dialect. Following the Norman conquest, writing in England really began to increase in popularity. From 2,000 charters in Anglo-Saxon, England, to tens of thousands of charters in mid-13th century England alone, the increase in Middle English increased exponentially during this period. Twenty medieval texts were written in the 13th century, 140 in the 14th century, and 872 in the 15th century. Despite there being an English script, it was not standardised. During the 14th century, attempts were taken to turn English into something uniform. There were various guilds and professional groups who were pushing for a more standard English. This largely came from southern parts of England, like East Anglia and London, while the latter development of the two ancient universities in Oxford and Cambridge helped it to develop. The advent of printing helped to solidify the written language and accelerated the development of English. Firstly, because it stimulated the creation of books to guide writers and printers into how to follow a standard form. So, we've had a quick look at the development of English, but let's look at other scripts for now. Firstly, the Hebrew script. Hebrew is the script of the Jewish people and Israel, but there are actually two distinct Hebrew scripts. The first is found only in religious literature and a few Samaritans. It is the oldest script by quite some distance, having descended from the Phoenician script around the 9th century BC, but disappeared from secular use around the 6th century BC. The second script, sometimes known as Square Hebrew. Modern Hebrew is Square Hebrew and dates from the 3rd century AD. Meanwhile, Aramaic was the predominant script for 1,000 years after the Phoenician influence declined and was the official script of the Babylonians, Assyrians and Persian empires displacing cuneiform. This was the language of Jesus and probably the original language of the Gospels. Its extinction only came from the force that was Islam and the Arabic language, which itself descended from Aramaic. So, Arabic is a Semitic language. Both Hebrew and Aramaic are Semitic scripts, and the Hebrew script has always held a romantic appeal for the Jewish dysphoria. But for much of Jewish history, as Jews left the Holy Land and dispersed east and west, Hebrew was largely religious in nature. However, during the 19th century it was revived as a working language. Modern Hebrew is based somewhat off Old Hebrew, reversing the normal idea of a script being based off a language. This is a language based from a script. The Arabs, meanwhile, were identified as early as the Assyrian people, around the 9th to 7th century BC, but didn't play a large geopolitical role in affairs until the 1st century AD. The first Arab independent kingdom was known as the Nabataeans, located in Petra in modern-day Jordan. They spoke a form of Proto-Arabic, but wrote in Aramaic. The blending of the two scripts led to a distinct Arabic form, and the use of these gave way to the Arabic language in an Aramaic script during the first century of the first millennium AD. 
From the beginning of the Arabic period, there were several forms of the Arabic script, but there were similarities with all having 28 consonants, instead of the 22 in the Aramaic scripts, to represent the additional sounds of Arabic to Aramaic. While a new ordering of consonants was established to largely address for the fact that Arabic was read right to left. Moving further east, and the Indian scripts have an unclear history. Some scholars have tried to trace a link between the undeciphered scripts of the Indus Valley civilizations we talked about earlier to more modern ones. But with a 1,500 year gap between scripts, this seems unlikely. Most scholars agree that the Aramaic script went further east, and was one of the several influences on the earliest Indian script, Karotsi. The earliest known Indian script is dated from the period of the Emperor Asoka, 270-232 BC. The earliest script found in northern India were in Kusothi, and another called Brahmi, which proved to be more important in the end, with 200 South Indian scripts being based from it. With India being such an advanced civilization in many areas, the Indians were able to use a sophisticated knowledge of phonology and grammar to reorganize the language to make it entirely different from Aramaic. Skipping over China for a moment, the further we go east and the more interesting it becomes. The Korean alphabet is one of the few alphabets whose invention can be dated to an exact date. For a millennium, the Koreans wrote using Chinese characters. Then in 1443-1444, King Sejong introduced a new script with 28 characters. Officially, the script was created by King Sejong, but it's not like any Korean leader since to falsely claim credit for great achievements, is it? However, in this instance, it may be more truthful than the Kim's golfing successes. Sejong was a man of learning, more Frederick the Great than Kim Jong-il. He called for more general equality and urged everybody to read, even women and girls. This new Korean script was met with resistance, and 500 years later, there is still conflict, with North Korea adopting a script known as the Hangul exclusively in 1949 with the Kim takeover. While in South Korea, they used a mixed script, though it seems to be moving more towards the alphabetic Hangul script slowly. It's not entirely clear how the Koreans came to know of the alphabetic principle. The Koreans were in contact with the Mongols who used two alphabetic scripts and with Indian Buddhist writings passed through China to Korea, it's possible Sejong was influenced in this way. Despite Chinese being a famous language for not being alphabetic in origin, this isn't the whole story. In 1936, Mao Zedong told an American journalist that, quote, Latinization is a good instrument with which to overcome illiteracy, close quotes. Chinese characters are so difficult to learn that even the best education does not equip people with the capabilities to fully embrace the written word with a rich vocabulary. Though Mao was not fully able to embrace Latinization, in 1955 he was able to eliminate certain variants of characters and reduce the number of strokes in those remaining. And then, in 1958, the Chinese introduced Pinyin, Chinese for spell sound, as the official writing system the sounds of Chinese and transcribing Chinese characters. Pinyin was adopted for the spelling of Chinese names outside China, and it meant that Peking became Beijing. 
During the disastrous Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, the xenophobic Red Guards taught anything down to do with Pinyin as not wanting to be seen to be kowtowing to foreigners. However, this led to a strange mix of tradition and new. The continuing changeover to Pinyin has seen much controversy, not only due to the slow move away from the ancient Chinese script, but also because learning this new script from scratch is tricky in itself. So as we've moved across the world, we've seen how the alphabet has been traditionally based from the Egyptian hieroglyphs, which then passed through the Phoenicians and Semitic peoples to Greece and Rome, which led to the modern Latin alphabet most of you at home will use. However, modern language is ever more slowly going back to a hybrid system. Go to an airport, how many signs and symbols will you see? We all know which toilet which be going in from the symbol alone. See a telephone sign? You know what that means, or a large P for parking. You don't need 15 different languages to tell you which is the ladies or the gents. There is some controversy over the calling these symbols a form of communication writing. Some speculate that a future writing system using symbols or logographic systems would be capable of expressing an entire range of thought that can currently only be expressed in speech. Furthermore, the appeal of images over writing has been a slow change in how we get our information. Cinema and TV is the dominant form of entertainment, not literature. Memes and emojis are increasingly prevalent in how we communicate. We can see from afar how printing helped develop the alphabet and standardise the written language. But today we are living through one of the largest cultural changes in the written language, with the invention of the PC and the internet. Huge changes, probably larger than we saw under the printing press, is taking place. The internet means that language can spread globally in real time, with English becoming the world's lingua franca. As trade and interconnectedness resulted in a standardised English for England, the internet may push us towards a world English. Almost 3 billion people have regular exposure to English in some form, and that's only going to grow. In Europe, English is still the language of choice. Even in the European Union, with no Britain, English is still the primary language. English is used all over the world. How will this change the world? Well, most obviously, it will bring whole new worlds and grammar systems to English, as we can see how the Nigerians, Indians, Chinese, Brazilians and Germans all begin to use the English language. So, the Latin alphabet has 21 letters in Finnish to 30 letters in Croatian. The Latin alphabet is used by 100 languages in 120 countries with 2 billion people able to understand it. The Latin alphabet is based on letters that combine certain sounds together to make a word. We take it for granted that this was a natural process, but human history suggests it wasn't. The letter T makes a T sound, the O gives us an O sound, and the M gives us a M sound, but add this all together and you get Tom. One of the great things the alphabet is able to do is keep the amount of letters small. Letters can have several related pronunciations, and we're instinctively able to understand what sound they make. This is a far easier system to understand than the Chinese system of characters. There's generally 20 to 30 letters in Latin alphabets, 33 in the Russian Cyrillic alphabet, and 32 in Farsi. The reason you only need a few is because there's only around 20 to 40 phonemes per language. 
A phoneme is a distinct unit of sound used in languages. That languages have so few distinct units is quite amazing when you think about it. Yet English has between 44 and 48 phonemes depending on the regional accent. This is due to the English's borrowing from the German, French, Latin, Norse, Celtic and Greek languages. English doesn't have 44 letters though, and by combining two letters together it indicates certain sounds, like CH to give us the CH sound, or TH to give us the TH sound. Apart from certain oddities like chord, which should be pronounced chord, the alphabetic system is far easier to learn than logographic systems. So getting a little deeper into the alphabet, what are capital letters? Why do they exist? Very simply, they're a marvellous little innovation within the broader invention of the modern alphabet. They tell you you can clearly see the start of a new sentence, abbreviations and initials. They're a crucial part of prose and help us to read and ingest information that's ever a bit quicker. Capital letters began in the 4th century to highlight the start and to ornate a new page. By the 14th century, scribes were treating this to begin new sentences. So Johannes Gutenberg thought this was a good idea and used the convention too. The question of what came first, did the use of capital letters at the start of sentences help construct formal prose, or was it already there? Conversations are not like the written language, and start talking more informally and using slang. We don't talk in prose. This is why writing is so much more difficult than talking normally. We don't think in prose. Prose is considered thoughtful and reflective. Capital letters all help with this process. Yet despite all of this, five and six-year-olds can learn the basics of language and writing very quickly. And this is due to the alphabetic system. The Chinese language needs 2,000 symbols for daily educated readers, and there are 60,000 symbols overall. The average person has around 20,000 active words in their vocabulary, or around 40,000 passively, showing what a huge task this is to learn too. But English has only 26 letters, and is still managed to give rise to some of the greatest works of literature and human creativity. So what are these 26 letters? And how did English come to export this variation of the Latin script, one of the many variations around the world, so effectively? So now we're going to do a complete A to Z of the Latin alphabet as we understand it in English. Where did these letters come from? Because each has their own story. Some are very similar, some are very different. A. The letter A is one of the oldest and most consistently used letters in the world. It was the first letter for the Greeks and Phoenicians, and first came in the alphabets of the Levant 4,000 years ago. The letter A is perhaps the most symbolic letter in the alphabet. A is the best, first rate. A list celebrities are more famous than B list celebrities. It is one of the five vowels of English, but there are 12 possible sounds of the letter. Was Alan's par all pale is six different A sounds in the same sentence. The A sound made during par is the normal pronunciation of letters in other languages. This A sound scholar David Dringer quote the purest and simplest vocalic sound as uttered by the opening of the passage of the throat to its fullest extent close quotes. The Greek letter alpha gave way to the Etruscan a 
that led to the Roman adoption of the sand. Its written form has three variations. The written form of A, we all write, is different to the way we write A as a capital and A in lowercase. It shares this only with G in having a different print or digital form to its handwritten equivalent. B. B originally comes from the Egyptian hieroglyphs and means shelter. Rotate the B 90 degrees so the loops are below, break open one of the loops on the letter B and you have a door, room and a roof over both. The Semitic word for house is bayat, which begins with B, and the letter was rotated to a vertical position and the Greeks closed the loops and called it beta. The Etruscans reduced beta to ba or be, which the Romans and Normans kept, but in English this became b, though in Irish be still survives its pronunciation. C. C began life as gimel in Phoenician and looked something like a boomerang, not that they didn't know what that was of course. The Greeks then called it gamma and the Etruscans turned the G sound of gamma into a K sound. The Normans pronounced it se, and this became C. C is one of the oldest letters in the alphabet, with its three main sounds so one alike. The K sound, the S sound, and the CH sound. The K and the Q sound also take up some of the real estate of C. Despite it being the 13th most used letter, it had only one genuine original sound, CH. Some language reformers have tried to reduce or eliminate the C. As early as 1551, John Hart was urging for the reform of the letter C. The reason for C's lack of utility is the Etruscans who copied the letter from the Greeks had little need for it themselves. The Roman period just after the Etruscans saw the heyday of the letter C with Cicero, Caesar and the Colosseum, but after Rome, C became slurred into the church sound. The Normans used it and brought it to the English. The soft C in citizen or cycle, however, could still be spelt with an S. D. In about 800 BC, the Phoenicians drew a rough triangle and called it Dalat to mean door. The early Greeks drew it with a down stroke on the right and made the triangle a semicircle and called it Delta. The Phoenicians did have those voice stops and so B, G and D were placed together. The lowercase d begins in Italian manuscripts in around 400 AD. However, early printers in 1500 turned the d around and connected the semicircle up to create what we know as the capitalised d. In Norman English, it was pronounced day, and the great vowel shift turned this into d. In English, d is the first sound learned in English. Most seven-year-olds begin with da, ma, or ba. These are called voice stops. Something, for example, Chinese Mandarin does not have. So that's why it can be so difficult for people who didn't grow up with these languages to learn the same pronunciations. E is the most often used letter in the English alphabet for a fairly simple reason. E can be used to make 15 different sounds. In the following words, E makes a different sound each time. B, mere, red, alert, sudden, new, so, latter, great, hard, and height. E's prominence also increased with the computer and putting E before everything. Email, for example. And if you go to the right parties and ask for an E, that will also give you the night of your life. The other thing with E is that it can be used on words that give no meaning, 
and used on the end to elongate a word. Win with an E on the end is wine. Just elongate the previous three letters. Same with fat versus fate. In the 1600s, Y was pronounced the same, but spelled W-I-F. Add the E on the end and you've got the modern day spelling. Starting around 3,800 years ago, it was a stick man with two arms and one central leg. It probably meant he and was pronounced her. By the time the Phoenicians got hold of the letter in 1000 BC, they turned it to look like the reverse of F, but with two horizontal lines instead of our one. The ancient Greeks kept this letter, and around 700 BC, the letter began to indicate the sound E, and then the Romans created the uppercase letter E. In around 540 AD, Latin manuscripts began to see lowercase E's, something the printers also saw in the 1500s and kept the lowercase e. The e hasn't really changed. It is perhaps the most important letter in the alphabet. F. F is probably the one letter that's most identified with one word. And we all know what that word is. It's now lost a lot of its pure vulgarity and now used to shock and grab attention. It's a great letter for it too. You can really split out that letter. The reason is that the F belongs to a group of consonants called fructives, which involve breath, expelled through some constrictions of the mouth. Letters like S, Z and SH are fructives too. The crude sound of the F letter was not unique to English, with Cicero calling it the unsweetest sound in Latin. He said it was harsh and unpleasant a sound scarcely human or even vocal. So which civilization thought to bless us with this most wonderful of letters? The letter starts with the Phoenicians, who pronounced it wall, and the Greeks turned it into wow. The letter itself begins almost looking like a Y, and then the Greeks turned it backwards to make it look like an F. And when the Etruscans got their hand on it, they flipped it around again. While the Romans regularised the letter, giving it a firm 90 degree angle at the top and middle, it was the Romans too who turned the wa sound into a fa sound. G. There's a reason the word guttural starts with a G. G starts with a very throaty and deep sound. G has five potential pronunciations, including a silent one. The soft G, think as in J, is the same as a J. Soft C and soft G share a lot in common. G is one of the oldest letters going back to the Phoenicians, where G was the third letter of the alphabet, only to be replaced by C. The Greeks then took this letter they called Gimel, which remains the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and which looked like our capital I. It was pronounced Z, which is how the Romans picked it up from the Etruscans. However, they didn't need the same Z sounds, and so the Romans refashioned it to look more like an E, without the middle horizontal stroke, while the letter itself became more of a hard G sound. The letter began to be curved to a crescent shape, so it began to get the modern day G shape, and the Romans pronounced it gay due to its similarity to C, and thought to curve it like that too. With the Romans having no J, the G would have to be both a hard and soft sound to compensate, which is why so many Latin words with the G in them are pronounced 
with a J. Think religion, for example. H. Oh, H. This is one of the biggest divisions in the alphabet. It's hard to say this letter. All this, despite H being a relatively pointless letter. I would always say, if you were to remove one letter, it should be the her. Its biggest use is to make breathy sounds for other words. Think ah or hmm. We treat it as a letter and a consonant at that, but it's a mere addendum to the alphabet. So where did we get this pointless letter? Well, back to the Phoenicians who used the H sound to pronounce the sound hey. The Greeks copied the Phoenicians' alphabet, where the H sound was more covered by the modern-day E, while the Greeks added in its own letter for this sound called heta, which was once again copied by the Etruscans and later the Romans. The addition of the H was controversial, with Romans and Greeks thinking this to be a letter letter. The dislike of H was followed up by the French Renaissance, with Gregory Torrey in 1529 saying H is not a letter, but by poetic license is given that status. In the 1712 book, English Grammar, Michael Mater says, quote, H is not a proper letter, and its use will be taught amongst those marks which belong to syllables, close quotes. Playwright Ben Johnson was more supportive in 1640, marking H to be a different letter, but still an important one. H's transmission to English went through the Normans in 1200 AD, with Norman French struggling to translate Anglo-Saxon into the Roman letters they were working with, so the H was added to help with this. Another difficult issue H faces is its tendency to fade from pronunciations at the start of words. The sentence, an historian who has written a history book, has the first H being pronounced less than the H in history. The most famous loss of the H is in the Cockney accent, think hello rather than hello. <coughs> I. The I has to be one of the most distinctive letters of the English alphabet, and is used in so many different ways. It's the fourth or fifth most used of all letters. It probably helps it's a vowel too. The I and the E often get mixed up, with the whole I before C except after C thing, which is completely wrong. In around 1000 BC, the letter Yod, the Greeks adopted this and turned it into the letter Iota, and it became a vertical two-jointed squiggle, and by 700 BC it became the vertical straight line we know today. Charlemagne's scripts gave us the minuscule version we know today. The pronunciation has changed too, with the normal pronouncing it E which evolved to I. The I is the alphabet's smallest letter, and subsequently has led it for much unuse. In the 1980s, Vanity Fair banned its use at the start of articles, as it wouldn't be spotted by many readers. However, its smallness also led it to be used in more imaginative ways. Its small nature, compared to a big letter, led Apple to introduce the I for internet to the front of its new products. iMac or iPad were not really named as such because of the I for internet, but because stylistically the I next to a big imposing letter like M or P is eye-catching. J. In Spanish, the old I sound was being pronounced in three ways, J, J, and Ch. There was no letter for these sounds, and so the Spanish invented the J to account for these sounds in the 1500s, as spelling started to be standardised with the printing press. So J is the last letter to be added to the English alphabet. 
Samuel Johnson thought it to be a secondary letter and a variant of I. Since the J introduction, it has been applied literally to anything and everything with the modern day J sound. Jupiter would have originally been called Jupiter, and Julius, as in Julius Caesar, was originally called Julius. The J sound also accounted for the G sound, which in Latin had always been a hard sound, but as Rome collapsed in 1476 and the various Romance languages grew out of Latin, pronunciation slipped and the Y sound slurred. In medieval Spain this became a H sound, which is why in Spanish it's Jesus, not Jesus. They never simply picked up this sound. In French, Italian and Portuguese it became a J, and then the Spanish started to print the J. It should be no surprise that Spanish has kept the flame of Latin's lack of J sound, with Spanish being the closest language to Latin. In Old English, there was no J sound. The Normans would have to introduce it into England. Yet even by the 1640s, the use of I for J was still in regular print. The use of J in the alphabet was only really confirmed by the American adoption of the letter. Even by 1836, books were being published saying the letter was unneeded. But by the 1850s, there was no going back now. K. K is in a hard place, having to constantly fight for its sound next to C and Q. This is odd, as we have too few letters for sounds, and here we have an extra one. It would be far better if we had a letter for SH or TH. All this results in K and Q being the most underused letters in the alphabet. Well, whose fault is this, over the confusion of the K sound? Well, it starts with the Egyptians in 2000 BC, with a letter looking like an outstretched hand. The Semites took this letter and called it Kath meaning palm of hand, to signify the K sound. The Phoenicians took this and turned it into a reverse of our modern day K sound. When the Greeks got hold of it, they called it Kappa, and when they turned their writing from left to right, it was flipped to look like our K. Despite C gaining most of K's glory, the K is far more useful. The C has many sounds, while the K is reliable. You know what the sound of K is, but the sound of C is always changing. K tends to be used far more in Northern European languages than the C, which is much more common in Southern European languages. There's many German words with K in it, and not many in the Romance languages. The real people to blame are the Phoenicians, who already had two letters for this sound, Kof and Kuf, with them pronouncing them somewhat separately. Yet, having the K in Q letter would not be useful for the rest of the people who inherited the alphabet. The Phoenician letters went to the Etruscans, who then added C as the third letter, making the K sound. The Etruscans pronounced C, K and Q differently, but the Romans who inherited it from the Etruscans did not. They made C the primary letter for the K sound, and used the Q in conjunction the U to make the Q sound. Indeed, K was basically a non-letter for the Romans, who only used it for foreign sounds. Carthage indeed was sometimes spelt with a K, using a foreign letter the Romans didn't use to make Carthage look even more foreign. Even despite the amount of Greek scientific words, the K was not used by Romans, 
And even in early modern English, the borrowed Greek words for scientific languages use the Roman C, not the Greek K. And yet the letter stuck around. Why? The K was useful in newer languages like Norse and German. If a language is more influenced by the Germanic languages, they have more Ks, and if it's Romance, it's more Cs. English, being that bastardised Mongol language, used both liberally, especially following the Norman conquest, which added many Cs to the language. Since the British opened up around the 18th century and started speaking and colonising the world, many words from these places use the K. Kangaroo or Kung Fu, for example. The Quran, now generally spelt with a Q, was originally spelt with a C and then a K. The foreignness of the K spelling is now used as a marketing effect. Think Kool-Aid or Krispy Kreme. Despite its initial lack of use, the K is now one of the more useful letters. L. L is often said to be the most beautiful letter in the English language. In sound, it's closely related to the R. And this sucks for the Japanese, as they struggle to pronounce the letter correctly. The supposed beauty of the sound comes from using your vocal cords as you push air past the side of your tongue as it blocks the mouth with the tip behind the upper front teeth. This beauty results in supposedly the most beautiful phrase in the English language, at least to say, if not meaning. Called phonesthetics, people like H.L. Mencken and J.R.R. Tolkien have said that Celador is the most beautiful short phrase to say in the English language. With the ability to soothe in its beauty, it's not surprised that the words love, lull, lullaby, la la land all begin with L. Ben Jonson in 1640 thought L to be the most beautiful sound. The opening to Vladimir Nakhobov's Lolita used this innateness to the letter to write Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul, Lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth, Loli. So where does this letter come from? Down the same well-trodden path like all the other letters. Starting in 1800 BC, the hook-shaped L meaning God appeared in the ancient Semitic language. The Phoenicians straightened the hook and reversed the T and called it Lamed. The Greeks took Lamed and made it look like a tick, while the Romans flipped it the other way around and gave it its right angle bottom that we know today. Despite the L being one of the more beautiful to say, it's not great to look at. The lowercase L is the least recognisable of all the letters, with the capital not great either. It doesn't help, of course, but it's often confused with number one. M. M is the first of the two naval sounds. It's also one of the first sounds we learn as humans. Like B and P, it's one of the first sounds a baby learns to say. J, V or SH come a lot later. When a baby says mama, it's not saying mother, it's saying the first sound it can. It's therefore no surprise that mothers decided thousands of years ago that the ma sound would read mother in a variety of different family groups. The relationship to the ma sound in motherhood is inextricable. 
The ma sound is the root of mammary, to mean breast, and mammal, which means animal that suckles. With all of this, it's no surprise that the N sound is one of the first letters. 4,000 years ago, it began in Egypt to mean water and indicated the N sound. Still nasal, but not mm, that would take its place in the Semitic language, where it began to be called mem, to mean water, once again. The Phoenicians in about 1000 BC carried on with the Semitic sound and changed the original zigzag letter to a horizontal one, so it looked more like the M letter we have now. The Romans then made it entirely symmetrical, and the M we know today. The Romans probably pronounced the letter Emma, like the Spanish do today. In coming from Norman France to England, it was reduced from Emma to M. Despite its famed beauty, it's always been used to convey mystery and danger. Mordor means murder in Old English. And we know how much Tolkien knew about Old English to think there was anything other than deliberate. In the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, the letter M symbolises that of a villain. And in James Bond, M is the name of the mysterious boss. N. The other nasal sounding letter, the N. Since Roman times, scholars have worked out that certain sounds go well together. C and G, B and P, S and Z. The M and N are perhaps the most closely related, with N essentially being a three-quarter M. Somehow, modern-day scholarship has been able to find out that the N was invented in Egypt by Semitic soldiers through copies of Egyptian hieroglyphs where the N looks more like a wave. By 1000 BC, this wave became vertical, and the Greeks took it and made it sound like N-U, and made it look like a V, and added a tail. The Romans made the tail shorter and inverted the V to make it look more like our N. Despite being the runt of the nasal sound path, the N is surprisingly well used, with it being the fifth or sixth most well used letter an ode to its prominence in Old English, and its abbreviation for number, meaning as well used too in algebra. As English spreads abroad, being increasingly used to make new sounds like ng that appears at the front of many African names, and the Chinese ngu too, the N is still a very well used letter. O. O is a pretty great letter. It's used in Shakespearean soliloquies, and music by itself demands attention to indicate drama. It's near the top of the letters we use, and it's pretty unlike any other letter. It's a pure circle, and there's many different pronunciations in English are amongst its best features. Plus, it's the only letter that's shaped like the way your lips say it. The letter O begins its life nearly 4,000 years ago to meet Egyptian hieroglyphs. The I Semites borrowed this and call it Ayin in their language, also to mean I. By the times the Phoenicians got to it, it still meant I. The Greeks changed this to mean short O, as in hot, as they already had a long O, as in O, coming from their letter Omega. Yet before the Greeks invented Omega, the Etruscans were already copying part of their alphabet, and copied the I from the Phoenicians, and used it both long and short O sound. It takes its English name like most vowels 
from the long sound and is basically not changed in 3,000 years. The Oxford English Dictionary lists seven possible O sounds, as in no, God, glory, north, do, sun, and word. Plus, in combination with other letters, there are seven other possible sounds, as in boy, now, good, fool, favour, and cough. This all goes back to the Norman Conquest, when new vowel sounds after the Norman Conquest arose from the mix of Old English and Norman French. Old English words like sun, S-U-N, became sun, S-O-N-E. The French use of the O has led to some of the weirdest parts of the English written language. Sun in the sky and a sun you give birth to. Same pronunciation and yet different spelling. P is in the category of consonants called stops where to make the sound during the expulsion of breath through the navel passage is temporarily stopped. In the Semitic language, around 3,800 years ago, a V-shaped appeared meaning P or mouth. By 1000 BC, the Phoenicians were writing it as a diagonal hook and calling it P to mean mouth. By the time the Greeks got hold of it, they called it Pi. Through the Etruscans to the Romans, it began to evolve into the modern day P. The use of the Greek pi in mathematics, with the Greek letter as the symbol for the circumference to diameter ratio, was down to the world's mathematician William Jones, publishing a book with this choice. It brought the attention of other mathematicians to this symbol and it caught on. The letter P is the third most used opening letter in the English language after S and C. These three letters account for one third of all words beginning in the English language. Yet P is relatively new to regular use in English. Using the Middle Ages in Old English, it was hardly used, but the use of the Greek and Latin influenced Norman French, resulting in its growth soaring. All those Latin posts and prefixes at the start of words, and the Greek para and pro, makes it one of the more important letters. Yet P, in the English alphabet, hasn't quite got the character of O. Q is the most famous letter for being at the start of the keyboard. The QWERTY keyboard has remained the same throughout the past 150 years. It goes back to the 1874 Remington Manual typewriter. Due to its mechanics, typewriters needed keys that were used a lot in combination to be far apart, so that the typewriter never got jammed. Type a few sentences and you'll see that a lot of common words you write are separated out across the keyboard. The most famous instance of that being the Q and the U letters. But where did Q come from? It's been traced to the Phoenicians with their letter Kof. The Greeks adopted it and called it Copper. Whereas the Phoenicians made a distinction between the K of their calf and the Q of their Kof, the Greeks did not, and so they dropped Copper. The Etruscans, however, did adopt it, and they passed it to the Romans who pronounced it with the Qu sound by 520 BC. It was the Romans who first invented the U after the Q to make the Qu sound, which penetrated the rest of the world, even the German languages, where the Qu sound beat out the Germanic Sw sound. It's perhaps this reason that Q is one of the least used letters. Its only real sound is a bit pointless. 
that the Q is starting to become a more modern letter. Q is being used more and more to render foreign words and names into English. Words like Quran and Qatar are being spelt with a Q, hinting at a possible resurgence of the letter. R. R is one of the most remarkable sounds in the language. Created by the vibration of the tongue throughout the mouth, with the tongue approaching the front teeth. R is a growl. Though interestingly, R is slowly slipping away in certain dialects of English. In some accents, the R is flattened. Earl becomes Earl. This isn't a new phenomenon. As the letter takes effort to say, people skip over it with the same effect and understanding. R begins with the Semites to mean resh or head. Around 1000 BC, the Phoenicians turned this into a reverse P, and the Greeks turned this into the early part of Rho. Slowly, with the Etruscans and the Romans, they turned it into the more modern-day R. S. It's no surprise that Slytherin House in Harry Potter begins with an S. It wasn't J.K. Rowling who was the first to notice the relationship between the hiss of the S sound and its relationship to snakes. S is the primary sibilant sound in English, that being a sound that hisses. Other sibilants include sh, z, or a soft c. S is the eighth most common letter, and S has about four sounds. The main two both occur in the word season. The other two are the sh sound and j sound, as in fusion or closure. Occasionally, the S can also be silent, as in island. The S comes to use from a horizontal curved W, perhaps signifying an archer's bow in the Semitic alphabet. The Phoenicians took this in around 800 BC and made it look angular and more like the modern day W. At this point, it meant shh, and the Greeks rotated it and called it sigma. The Etruscans took it and flipped it into the more regular S, and Romans turned it into a thick letter S. The S is one of the few letters that have philosophical and theological interpretations given to it. The hissing sound in Hebrew is one of the three mother letters along with A and M. The S also has an evil interpretation with its relationship to Satan. That the Nazi death group were called the SS probably doesn't help either. T. In the Western tradition, the T may be the most significant letter, the sign of the cross, the mark of Cain, and the final letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Even before Jesus was a thing, to the Romans it still marked the sign of crucifixion. The T is one of the more important letters in the language, with it being the second most used letter after E, and in Old English it was the most used letter. T's use comes from the TH sound, meaning the letter T is essentially two important sounds in one, with the strong T and the TH sound. And the strong appearance it has on the paper is one of the most imposing letters in the English alphabet. The ancestor for T began in the ancient Semitic language in 1800 BC, looking like our simple T, and it was called Tor, meaning Mark. The Greeks called it Tau, 
and the Etruscans adopted it and passed it to the Romans who called it tea. After Rome fell, the Latin tea began to be used less. In some places like Spain, tea began to sound similar to the letter S. For example, nation was first pronounced nation, then it became nation, and in Spanish, it's nation. The soft C replaces the T. Yet in medieval France, they say the T slurs into the S sound in certain words, but chose to keep the letter T for this sound. Hence, modern English's weird use of the letter T. U is the final vowel, but it has two child consonants in V and W. U used to be alone, with the alphabet going T, U, X, Y, and Z, and required to be the work of two letters. Furthermore, in the Roman days, the U looked like a modern-day V. So, if you see a stone-carved name of Julius Caesar, not only will there not be a J, as the Romans didn't have letter, the U's would be V's, but it was still pronounced U. The rounded U only began in 300 AD, as the Romans added handwritten strokes to the V, and circling it. The, the U was standardised in handwriting during the reign of Charlemagne in around 800. In Anglo-Saxon's rendering of the alphabet, the U was used early on, but as Latin became the Romance languages and spread northwards, there was confusion as to the sound. This was further compounded by the addition of the new V sound in medieval French, Italian and English. It was a sound with no letter. By Middle English in the 1300s, an attempt to order came to write B at the start of a sound and U anywhere else. Many of the earliest prints of Shakespeare used this method. But what really happened was the letters were formalised with the V given the V sound, of course, and U given the U sound. This ordering started in Italy. In around 700 it became formal, while at the same time another letter, W, was beginning to be given prominence in English and German. V and J are the youngest letters of the alphabet, with it only being fully accepted in the 19th century. V was born from U as J was born from I, and emerged from the broad changes in the European language after the fall of Rome. Ancient Latin has no V sound, with the closest being F. The Old Latin U is sometimes used in Spanish and French, with Spanish being the closest descendant to the original. But words and sounds slurred into others, coming out of the B sound, we get the V sound. The English already had a letter for this sound, with it being the modern day F. F and V are about as close as consonants can be. When the Normans invaded, they brought in Norman words, many of which had V sounds. Over the early modern period, the V letter emerged and codified into this somewhat new sound. W. The widest of all letters, and also the origin to the world's most pointless acronym. Saying World Wide Web is far quicker than saying www. Yet we continue to use the acronym, which takes far longer to say. The W is a sound that comes from the ancient Germanic roots, and one of the easiest sounds for an English baby to say. The W is perhaps the most interesting of all letters. It was first invented in the first millennium AD to exemplify how letters can be created to accommodate speech. The Latin W sound was mostly limited to making the qu sound, 
but also the Latin sphere that W survived. The W thrived in the Germanic languages, with the Anglo-Saxons, those tribes in northern Germany and southern Denmark, in the 400s AD using it a lot. Words like weapon, witches and woods all began with W. As Vikings conquered parts of northern France like Normandy, they gave them the W. Norman French therefore had the W and the Parisian French did not have it. The Normans used a double U shape to denote this new sound. The English did not have a letter for this. The modern day P was originally used to denote a wind sound, but the Normans saw an end to that. By the 1500s, the W began to be taught in English schools, while in Germany it saw a shift back to the V sound. X. X is perhaps the word most used by itself. X-rate, X-rated, X-men. It's one of the most unused letters, and its use at the start of words indicates a level of mystery and lack of use. This has been used for X meaning the unknown. In maths, Descartes was the one who introduced the X to meaning missing number. And when X-rays were discovered by William Röntgen, he called them X or mystery rays, as he didn't know what they were. Sometimes X was called X for experimental or extreme, in the case of triple X films. X comes to us from the Roman alphabet to represent the K sound. The letter was copied from the Etruscan alphabet, where it was taken up by the Romans and developed the sound X. In the Anglo-Saxon English, it was used for the hard K sound, as in Saxon or ox. With Norman French a softer X, such as luxury or anxious, came into the language. Used at the start of a word, X effectively means the Z sound, as in xylophone or Xena, the princess warrior. Since the start of the internet, like Q, X has seen a resurgence, with X randomly put at the start of words to indicate cutting edge or some sort of computer wizardry, like Xbox or Xcode. Y. The Y hasn't always been the Y sound. In Germany, the Y is represented by the J. The modern day Y is rooted both in the old fashioned Greek vowel Y and the Roman sound H. The Romans needed another letter as their language had a few extra sounds to that of the Greeks, and so the U wouldn't cut it. By the 300s AD, the Roman Y was being pronounced the same as the Roman I. From 580 to 1080, other words using the Roman I began to be spelt with a Y. Even today, I or Y can be used interchangeably, sometimes to mean different things. Flyer and flyer, using a Y or I, changes the meaning drastically. Z, if you're English, or Z, if you're American. The least used letter in English. For every 1000 times, E appears in the English language, Z only appears once. Yet like the other unused letters of the language, Z is appearing more and more, with Americans using a lot more Zs, where the English use S. For scribes, S is easier to use than Z, so in that instance I say, the British is the correct spelling. For the English, Z was reminiscent of foreign words, and perhaps where there was an intention to highlight the foreignness of certain translations. The letter comes down the traditional path, of the Phoenicians to the Greeks, Etruscans and then Romans. The Greeks called it Zeta, and the Romans kept the name. 
With the emergence of the Romance languages from Latin, the Z spread modestly through France and Norman England. But with rivalry from S, the S went out, and in America the Z or the Z was often used instead. The reason for the difference in pronunciations is odd. It seems both Z and Z went to America, but in 1882 it was noted in New England that it was always pronounced Z, and in the South, Z. With New England's cultural and intellectual dominance, the Z won out over the South too. Not that it really matters, of course. Inventions are just tools. Tools are what separates humanity from apes. The alphabet is just one very important tool in our arsenal to help us communicate and record language. To the modern-day person, the alphabet is very important. We use other ways to communicate now, but the written language is still the best. Academia is all written, not because it's full of old people who are determined not to change, though that could be true, but because it's the best way to spread information. It's the quickest, most efficient, and it's the cheapest. The alphabet is a remarkably little tool, helping us simply to represent certain sounds in our language on written paper. But for all of those reasons, it is listed at number 60 on our list of the greatest inventions of all time. Thank you.